Hi there, and thanks for joining us on this week's Brexit-free podcast. Let's face it, we've had a little bit too much of that kind of thing lately. We speak with the new PR man at UCC, the former naval officers who've set up a company with huge potential and a big project management conference that's coming to Cork. I'm Jonathan Healy, and this is Red Business. Red Business. Cork's exclusive business podcast. It's going to be a big year on campus for University College Cork with the opening of new buildings, there's a new bridge and new beginnings. And it's new beginnings for my next guest as well, who has taken over uh, in telling the world about how good University College Cork is. Owen Hassey of UCC and the Press and the Marketing Office. How are you? I'm good, Jonathan. Great to be here. Uh, thanks very much for coming in to join us. Now, we, we go back a long way because we would have worked together in another radio station at another time. But uh, in the meantime, you went off to find sunnier climes, didn't you? I did. I actually, when I left Newstalk, I went to Berlin, of all places. I spent two years in Berlin. Well, that's not very sunny, no, though, to be fair. No, no, it wasn't at all. Um, but then my wife, Sarah, said, let's go to Australia like many of the Irish do. And we went to Australia for a year and we were there for seven years. So I was working with the University of Melbourne there for seven years. So you, you began as a journalist, but you got sidelined into university. Mm, I did. Look, I got really attracted to universities. I, I love universities. I loved my time as an undergraduate, but I love university research. I love the passionate academics that take issues and try and make changes in society. And that's what really got me involved with universities. And when we worked together on a previous life, we dealt with a lot of universities in my role and just the research was just for me, just an area I wanted to work in. I mean, what, what I find fascinating about universities is you, you can throw a stone and you'll find an expert on something. Uh, it, it might not necessarily be the expert you want that day, but they are all there. But academics sometimes are not very good at telling the outside world about what they do. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also a fear, a genuine fear from academics in relation to media. But yeah, there is our job and my job is actually to bring that research more to the fore because there is such amazing research there and to try work with them to tell their stories. And that's what we did for seven years in Melbourne. We, we deployed a lot of new techniques in, in doing that because the media landscape, as you know, Jonathan, so well has changed and there's old traditional methods that was deployed by universities. And universities were at the centre of the debate for a long time. They've been pushed aside. We have a person in the White House who is really challenging evidence-based research. So where I'm coming from is to try to support those academics in getting their research out there. What was your experience when you got to Melbourne, you were in, uh, and the University of Melbourne there? Uh, Do they do it differently? Let's put it that way. Look... You can't compare the, the Irish education system with Australian higher education system and University of Melbourne in particular. University of Melbourne is number 32 in the world. It's 55,000 students. It's a lot more resource than um, than Irish universities would be. Yes, they do things differently, but we made some significant changes. They traditionally relied on you know, print inserts into newspapers and magazines and such like that. And you and I know we all live in our phones. It's digital first. So we completely change in how to tell the story of a university to be digital-led. So we created a content platform that basically distributed research across the world to media across the world um, under Creative Commons licensing. We also created podcasts, really good podcasts that are still very high in the iTunes charts in Australia and actually in the UK and Ireland as well. Um, and we also did really good video content. So looking at how we tell the story across a digital way. So when you were there, and obviously it sounds like you had a great time and a very successful time, what was it like to be amongst the Irish living abroad? Because you weren't alone, let's put it that way. There was a good cohort. How were the expats? 
Look, I, lo- I loved it. I got very involved in the Irish Australian community um, in a big way, and particularly in relation to history. Uh, we did, myself and my wife, we did, she worked at the State Library of Victoria, run the digital marketing there. We actually did an exhibition between the University of Melbourne and the State Library on the 1916 Rising, and it was the highest attended exhibition that they had in the last 15 years because of that groundswell of passion that's there. So I got deeply involved in both in the organisations there and also in particularly in relation to the vote for the Irish abroad. It was an issue that was quite personal to me and how the diaspora is treated. So I had some feisty conversations with politicians when they were over visiting <laughs> on St. Patrick's Day. But I love, I, I, I'm very still connected to that Irish diaspora. It's something that's a personal huge interest to me and I try to write on it when I can. But the, the Irish Australian community, I think Ireland really looks at America in a long way but forgets about the Irish Australian experience. Possibly it could, the history could have been tainted because of the you know, the prison ships and well, all that, that was kind it. of you, thing. You were sent to Australia for a reason, yeah. officially at least. Yeah, but it's a fabulous history. It's a, just a really rich history. Um, Sarah and I, we created a documentary that RTE showed that showed the impact of 1916 in Australia, which had never really been brought to the fore before, but in Australia and in Ireland. And we got... Um, RT, as I said, pick up it on the, the Australian National Broadcaster as well, and Etihad Airways showed it on their fleet as well. So the Irish Australian experience is phenomenal. I think it sometimes gets forgotten in Ireland. And, and of the cohort that were there, I mean, you'd have a lot of university students straight out who went over, particularly from certain professions, such as nursing and medicine. Uh, how are they now? I mean, you're only back a couple of weeks. So what is the mood amongst the people who had to travel to Australia or who went to Australia to see how to get on and, and ended up staying there in many ways? Yeah, look, there's a lot coming back. There is a lot coming back, particularly in the construction sector, uh, as that picks up here as well. But there's a lot staying there because they love their life over there. Like, the, everyone wanted, before I moved to Australia everyone said to me oh it's such a it's such a different experience or the life balance is phenomenal I never got that I never understood it to be quite honest with you but when you're over there you can actually see where your tax goes like in terms of the facilities the parks the health system we just had a baby she's one years old we went through the public system it was phenomenal Jonathan so the support that you get around in Australian society is phenomenal in terms of the taxation so it's, it's you always have this guilt as an Irish person when you're living abroad because you miss home, you miss your family, your parents get older, they get sick. So you always have that pull. So it's very, very difficult. We made the decision, it was a personal and a professional one, but it was more towards the personal. We just had the daughter, as I said, and it was just, we wanted to come home so she'd be surrounded by family. Mm. And now that you're here, um, what is the Ireland of 2019 compared to the Ireland that you left eight years ago? To be honest, we left just at the crash, and so I experienced all the boom as well. So it's like I'm reliving history. <laughs> to be honest, it's, it's very similar. Hopefully, not literally. <laughs> I had a queue for a coffee shop the other day, and I was like, "What is going on here?" So look, it's brilliant to see, obviously, Ireland rebounding. I just hope we don't make the same mistakes again. You see a lot of housing pressures here again. Um, so, but it's it's great to see the the the, um, the economy rebound. But I'd I'd like to see. In terms of education, I think uh, universities have a massive role to play in that. And I think what's sometimes forgotten for universities is they actually created a generation of skilled workforce that I think has assisted in the rebound mm. of the economy. And I think that gets lost in the argument. When we sit in this very studio and we talk to industry leaders, uh, people who work in the pharma sector or biopharma or you know that, that kind of heavy industry that, that Cork became popular for, they always talk about the quality of the graduates, how you know the universities responded. But when you think about it, that meant that the university had to respond actively to what was happening in the workplace. Are we still doing that sufficiently, do you think? Are we are we responding to what is 
the next revolution. The, we, we've undergone the internet revolution. God knows what's coming after us. Is it the AI revolution? Are, are we are we nimble enough? Yeah, look, there's always... Uh, yeah. In fairness to UCC, and if you look at the figures, UCC is very connected to industry. It's the highest performer in terms of uh, research investment in Ireland, in terms of universities, um, and has a very good employment rate for its graduates. But connection with what is needed um, in industry is always something we have to be aware of. What's the next thing coming? It's the second quantum revolution. Would you believe that's what's coming? We have just appointed a guy, Professor Seamus Davis, in a joint appointment with Oxford. And he's speaking about the second quantum revolution. And when he said it to me on the phone, Johnson, I hadn't a clue what he was talking about. Well, some people might ask, what was the first? <laughs> I don't know. Same it's this new generation of how we power computing. So if you look at it, silicon chips for what powered computing today, this is the next stage of it. And you think about how much power that goes across our computing system that affects our lighting, our heating, everything. This guy's a world leader, so he's going to pioneer research in this field. So for me, that's the kind of next area that Ireland is going to be going into on the economy. The the big challenge, and you've had to talk about it already, funding third level. How are we going to make sure that we can compete with the University of Melbourne? How can we compete with Oxford? How can we compete with MIT? You know, it'd be easy to say, well, sure, we're only a little university in the south of Ireland. We'll be doing grand. But nobody really wants to adopt that approach because nobody will want to come. Yeah, look, funding is always going to be an issue and I see it here. Like, I've come from Melbourne, as we said, and resourcing is an issue in Irish universities. There's myself and one other that are working on the, the media side of things with UCC, whereas when I was in Melbourne, I had a team of 10. So it's a, it's a lot different in that respect. And that's just from my side. It's across the board. The Irish Universities Association had the Save Our Spark campaign, which looked at funding across the higher education system. So it's a challenge and it does need to be looked at. We had the Peter Cassell's report that was done some time ago as well. There is models there that need to be looked at. It's hard. It's it's hard in this context when you've got nurses looking for increased wages and, and frontline services as well. So it's, it's a hard one from a p- political and a policy perspective to come to. But education is vital for, for Ireland. Mm. Uh, it is a big year, as I referenced at the start. I mean, what is going to be happening on campus this year? Well, look, we have a new uh, fantastic student hub that's going to open. Um, one really exciting thing that's happened in early February is the um, Atlas of the Irish Revolution uh, book has been made into a documentary with RTE, and that's going to be uh, broadcast in early February. And there's actually uh, a launch of it towards the end of January in the Cork Opera House, which is open to the public as well. So that's a really exciting thing. And for me, that's that's where... We need to go um, big on content creation, like aligning with organisations to create content that people want to digest. And because you're, get you're just in. telling stories at the yeah, end of the day. Exactly. And yeah. they're stories that people will be interested in. Yeah. I remember last year there was a fantastic resource that was produced to show what happened in your area during the famine. And yeah. it was an interactive thing that you could go in mm. and see literally what happened at your air code yeah. during the famine. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that, that we will probably see more of over the uh, coming year. Uh, the student hub opens as well. The bridge is open now, of course. Yeah. Do you think that UCC is going to see itself going back up those rankings clawing back a little bit of ground because every university dropped it wasn't just Cork but there, there, therein lies the challenge Look it's so competitive it's an international marketplace or field that you're dealing with so it's very competitive there's so many different areas that you have to approve across the way for rankings the future looks good for UCC I think they're making very good strong moves for the foundation of the university for the city and for this region um, yes the Tom Cavanagh Bridge is open which extends the campus and links it into the city more as well um, the student hub as I mentioned but there's there's a lot of work to be done to, to compete on an international level 
it's across the universities where you need to make changes. So there, there is a lot of work to be done still. OK, well, we look forward to hearing all that news coming out of UCC in the next 12 months. Owen Hassey, the new head of media and PR at University College Cork. Thanks for joining us on Red Business. Great to talk to you, John. Red Business. All that's best about business in Cork. Now, the next business we're going to feature was forged at sea aboard naval vessels and two people who became entrepreneurs after their career in the Irish Navy. It is my pleasure to introduce Ronan Carey and Connor O'Sullivan of Arc Asset Solutions. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, nice Jonathan. Nice uh, to meet you. Now, where, now I mean, I, I've, I've obviously given it away completely, but where did you meet each other? Um, Ronan, I'll ask you that first. We both served in the Irish Navy. Uh, I did 20 years. Connor did just over that. And from working in various engineering appointments as naval senior naval officers ashore and then at sea, we started to uh, use our reliability engineering together. So you were actually on board tinkering with the ships then, Connor, were you? Yeah, yeah. Um, both of us have a lot of experience seagoing. So uh, I, I did 26 years in total service with the Irish Naval Service. Um, and about approximately half of that would have been spent at sea on ships, uh, fixing machinery and ensuring the reliability of ships at sea. And, and let's face it, uh, that was the time before we had the new ships, so there were older ships and a lot more went wrong with them, so you were busy, I'm guessing. Absolutely, very <laughs> busy keeping the show going, yeah. Um, so when did you have this entrepreneurial moment uh, that you decided that, hang on, we can use our experience in, in a practical way? It would have been just before we started sending uh, naval ships to the Mediterranean for the humanitarian crisis. We had to pivot the mission for the ships. They had to be 100% reliable out in the Mediterranean. So we needed to look at how reliable the fleet was, the machinery that we're going to be sending down there. And after we had used our skills in specifically oil management, we were able to send the ships down there. 18,000 lives have been saved and not one sea day lost in the number of years that we've been down there. So once we looked at all the data, after we've done that, we thought there must be some opportunity here for industry where we can take our skill and knowledge that we've gained and apply it on a commercial So basis. you didn't lose a single day on any of those vessels? No. Through a plan that you guys implemented? Planned maintenance. Uh, before the ships were deployed, they would have got a full health check. We would look at all the machinery, especially any machinery with oil. So we would treat the oil and the machinery like the way you would look at the blood in your body. We'd do a diagnosis of the machinery based on an oil analysis report uh, we've got specialist qualifications in machinery lubricant analysis that we're able to interpret these results and then be able to pinpoint if there's anything going wrong with the machinery, such as bearings or mm. water ingress. We're then able to c- carry a corrective action before the ship deploys to give it 100% reliability. Now, the old classic thing is, of course, as a non-engineer, now you're starting to lose me going, hang on, Sorry I, about I, that. I'm, I'm a little bit at sea myself, but I'm, I'm still with you so far. Um, Connor, the practical applications of this uh, that's where the entrepreneurial bit lies. It, it, this works very well for the Irish Navy, but obviously there was potential to use this commercially, was there? Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, uh, our, our first our first move was to conduct research uh, to see what was going on in wider industry, whether it was pharmaceutical industry, energy, uh, and and the wider maritime industry. And what we found is there is a problem out there. And it's costing Irish industry about a billion euro in avoidable losses every year. So what's the problem? The problem is poor oil condition in machines, in okay. a nutshell. So in other words, not looking after the oil that they're leaving it 
got along. Yeah, I suppose not to get too complex about Please it. Please don't, because I'm not an engineer. Uh, but modern oils degrade much more quickly than older oils did. Oh, that's like the, that's like your nana would use to say. They don't make them like they used to. That's <laughs> it in a nutshell, Jonathan. Absolutely. Um, and and it's causing industry a problem now, uh, essentially. So so what we have found is it's pretty widespread. Um, and it is is costing Irish industry uh, and uh, around the world's global industry a lot of money in, in losses. So the other thing that you've done and you've managed to harness the power of is technology. And this is something that perhaps you wouldn't have been able to do 20 years ago, Ronan, I would imagine. No, no. And that's to use the cloud to sound the alarm if something is not working. So how did you manage that? Correct. So what we do is we take away the complexity. We simplify the business of machine reliability we take the complex data and then we put it back in an easy-to-read format, which will give the typically their time-pressured engineers the data that they need to be able to see quickly what machinery is going to have a failure and give them fair warning that they can So fla- flag up that machine X is, is going to be in trouble in six, yeah, six weeks unless you do something Exactly, now. exactly. So we look at the oil in a minuscule level that you can get that much detail and therefore that much forewarning. And because it's IoT and because it's the cloud we're able to do continuous monitoring. So, so how, how, continuous how do you monitor the, the, the oil in the machine? Does a man not have to come out or a woman have to come out and have a look at it? Typically what goes on, you take a, you'll have an individual have to take a sample manually. We now are able to plug a sensor in. It goes up through an edge process that we've developed. That goes to the cloud and then that's just transmitting 24-7. So you have full-time monitoring of the oil. Uh, the reason why we're we're talking to you guys today is because not only have you seen the vision in this, but others have seen the vision as well. And and you have won Intertrade's seed corn competition. Tell us a little bit about the importance of that, Connor. Yeah, uh, I suppose first the, the the reason we entered these Intertrade seed corn competition was we wanted to benchmark ourselves and our business against what the perspective of, of investors and what they're looking for, and we wanted to see. You know, are we approaching uh, investor readiness? The I suppose the result was we won the Munster Regional Final and we went forward to the All-Ireland Finals in Belfast. So we were one of the last four companies left. Unfortunately, we didn't win the overall. But uh, what it showed us is, yes, we are uh, getting close to investor readiness. It helped us to refine our business plan, our pitching techniques and all that kind of stuff. So I suppose what it did for us was confirm for us that, yes, we have an idea uh, and it is scalable. When we talk about the potential that's there for companies, what I love about your story and the two of you sitting in front of me now is that you are both engineers. Uh, you were working together in the Irish Naval Service. I don't know how long you, you, you have to put in before you, you, you leave the Naval Service. How many years? Is it 25 or 30? It depends on your contract. So... If you get, if they sent you to college to train, you could do up to a 16-year contract and then you can leave after that. So it depends for each individual. Okay, but it, the through. thing is, you did your time. We you, did our time, you, yes. You did your time and then like, you would have been entitled to sit in your backside and do nothing for the rest of your lives, but you decided to go out and, and, and to do this instead. And in, in many ways, is this, is this like the second go on the roundabout? Is that what you're, is that what you're doing here? I suppose it is. Um, we're never ones to be sitting back and doing nothing. We're always something's always playing in the back of our mind. How can we improve this? How can we make things better? Is there a better way of doing things, a more modern way? So I suppose this is our own chance now to go out and, based on what we've done with the Irish Navy for the humanitarian missions, to be able to see can we go out and improve, help industry improve their reliability, increase productivity. 
And I haven't seen any dirt under the fingernails, lads. Is this a cleaner existence than what you had before? It's early, yeah. it's early in the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wish you the very best of luck with it. The company is called Arc Asset Solutions. Co-founders Conor O'Sullivan and Ronan Carey. We wish you the very best in the future. And uh, here's hoping there's a lot more seed corn that's going to come your way and build the company over the next few years. Thanks okay. for joining us. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. The only show in town for Cork Business, Red Business. Now, Cork has a growing share of the conference market, and let's talk about another one that is heading to Lee Side and with me in studio to tell me all about it is someone we've spoken to on the podcast before, Pat Lucy, who is with Aspira, but who is currently the president of the chapter, the Ireland chapter of the Project Management Institute. Pat, how are you? Very good, thanks. Delighted to be with you, Jonathan. You've many titles. I don't know how you keep up with yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about this conference. Uh, it's it's the first time in a long time that it's not being held in Dublin, first of all. Exactly. So this is the National Project Management Conference. It covers the entire country. And for the past 10 plus years, it's been held in Dublin. And this year, in recognition of all the projects that are being uh, delivered in the Cork and Munster region, we're taking it out of Dublin and we're bringing it to Cork. So it's going to be held on the 28th of February, last day of February, in Photo Island Resort in Cork. So who is going to be at this? So the attendees are project managers from all over the country or people who have an interest in project management. They can be in the public sector, private sector. We've got single person startups all the way to massive multinationals attending. And in terms of speakers, we have a very interesting lineup. What we try to do is get a mix, get a diverse mix of people. Because project management is so pervasive, we try to you know, get uh, interesting, eclectic uh, examples from different parts of the industry. So Dermot Bannon, for example, is one of our, our headline speakers. So Dermot is well known. He, hang on a second. Project managers hate Dermot Bannon because he starts at one point and finishes at another. You're, are you going to frustrate the poor people in the room? So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting chat with Dermot because his view is, is all about creativity. He comes in and comes up with an idea and often he has to battle with project managers to get it through. But I think there's a lesson in there for us because the thing that makes project delivery complicated isn't the size of the budget. It's the number of stakeholders you have to deal with, and especially stakeholders with conflicting requirements. So Dermot faces that every time. He has an idea that you know I might want a nice bungalow, but he might want turrets of a castle built for me. So he has to figure out, it's not enough that he comes up with the design, he then has to figure out how to convince me that this is the right design and he has to keep me on board right through the project. And we've seen numerous examples of how he does that and what me as a regular project manager wants to know is how do you do it, Dermot? So that's what he's going to share, how he can get people to buy into his sometimes uh, out-of-the-box thinking. Uh, Pat, have you ever seen the programme? Nobody buys into it until the very last minute where it magically appears and goes, oh, he's right, it was lovely. Um, project management is, is one of these things that people don't necessarily know the ins and the outs about. What, what is a project manager uh, in that modern context? Of the 300 people in that room, sure. if you were to meet them on the street and ask them what they did for a living, what would they tell you? Sure. Typically, they're, they're people who make change happen. So... A project has a start and has a finish. You don't go into a project for the rest of your life. You go in there with a deadline. Something has to be built or some new system implemented by the end of the year or by two years' time or whatever. So as a result, it's not a job you go in and just keep doing the same thing all the time. There's different phases. Think of building a house. You'll have your design phase, your build phase, your first fix, second fix, and then your commissioning. Then it's over. You walk away. So like that, project managers have to be able to work across different phases and like an example, one of our speakers is Eve O'Brien, who is one of the founders of Food Cloud. And she's a very interesting story to tell because 
what what they do is they take surplus food from restaurants and from uh, supermarkets and then they distribute it to to uh, needy people, people who, who are looking for uh, food. But, you know, it's a great idea and everybody buys into the idea. But the reality is if you have 10,000 heads of lettuce and nothing else to go with it, you can't feed anybody with that. So there's a whole logistical organising, managing your resources uh, aspect to it. And it's only when they cracked that bit that they were able to be successful. And, and life has become a lot more complicated. The, the idea of the straightforward project is, is long gone. I mean, presumably most of the projects that your members will be taking on have many, many layers, cause a few sleepless nights and a little bit of stress. And you, you need someone good at the top managing all of that, don't you? Absolutely. It's a challenging role to have. And if you look at the amount of money that's spent on projects in this country, in the Cork region alone, there's between four and six billion spent on projects each year. Each and year? managed out of this area. Wow. Some of those are multinational projects with a global reach uh, and some are local here. But um, Irish people have a very strong reputation for project management. I think it's because of the ability to communicate and to to plumos, I suppose, to a certain extent and keep people happy. Um, so internationally, we're seen as we're in the top three nations worldwide for our project management skills and ability. And that's one of the reasons why it's been so uh, taken off so well here. In fact, one of the speakers we have, his name is Jim Snyder. He was one of the original founders of the Project Management Institute 50 years ago, 1969. The profession was created. He was one of the five people who came up with the idea of formalising the role of the project manager. So for the first time, he will be in Ireland and it's going to be fascinating to hear from him. You know, the concept of idea to reality, they had this idea that maybe people might be interested in this role of project manager. And now you've got a reach of over three million people um, that are part connected to so the So he's PMI. like the inventor of project management, <laughs> yeah, is he? pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's too polite to ever call himself that. He always gives credit to others. But he was one of the five people who, who coined the term, came up with the whole idea. Mm. So uh, how important is it that this event is actually going ahead in Cork then, based on that massive amount of money that has been spent on projects out of here? Because the dubs like to hold on to everything for themselves. Is, is it a... a, a I suppose, an indicator of how big Cork is in the sector and how, in many ways, many of the leaders are based here in the South. Yeah, so Dublin, within Ireland, Dublin is the biggest section. Most project managers are based there, but Cork is number two, Limerick is number three. And in the Cork area, traditionally, it's been the pharmaceutical sector that has been strong and big projects. But over the years, we've seen an awful lot of, of additional work happening in the IT space, financial services space. So Cork is, has really established itself as uh, coming up on close on the heels of Dublin. And I think when we look for the next uh, 20 years, the expectation is that Cork's growth will outstrip every other city in, in Ireland. And we expect that to just get stronger and stronger. OK, well, we wish you the very best of luck with it. The event is on when? The event is on February 28th in Fota Island Resort. You can sign up at the website, which is projectireland.ie. So we have an early bird special for the month of January. So it's great value. I would say come along and people will really enjoy and learn a huge amount from the diverse range of speakers we have. OK, Pat Lucy, President of the Ireland Chapter of the Project Management Institute. Good luck uh, with the event in February and thanks for joining us again on Red Business. Thank you, Jonathan. My thanks again to all of our guests. Don't forget the new home of Red Business is redextra.ie and you can catch all the episodes on iTunes. Leave Hennessy produced and we'll catch you on the next one. Red Business, Cork's exclusive business podcast.